We'll start as we always do by taking a look at what's in today's newspapers and our panel in studio this morning to help me do that. Owen O'Malley, social scientist at the School of Law and Government in DCU. Good morning, Owen. Good morning. Sheena Cahill is the president of the Union of Students in Ireland. Good morning, Sheena. Good morning. And Dr. Alona Duffy is a GP in Monaghan and a medical director of the North East Doctor on Call Service. Good morning, Alona. How morning. are you? Morning. Uh, thank you all for coming in to be with us this morning. Uh, let's take a look at the front pages of the newspapers. We'll start with the Irish Mail on Sunday. Trump is coming to Clare in weeks. It says Secret Service agents will be here within days to arrange security for the US President. John Lee reports that American Secret Service agents will arrive in County Clare this week to arrange security for a visit by Donald Trump a month later. The Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal President Trump is expected to arrive at Shannon Airport on June the 6th or 7th and stay at his hotel in Doonbeg according to tentative security arrangements revealed to the Mail on Sunday last night goes on to explain that President Trump will be in France for the 75th anniversary of D-Day on June the 6th and he's expected here on a brief stopover to stay at his hotel and to play golf here. Um, It says, however, that ministers are reluctant to make an official announcement about all of this for fear of repeating last year's issues when a visit was announced and then cancelled again. Although I understand that uh, as of yet, uh, official officials, senior officials is what I really mean, um, within the American embassy have yet to formally communicate to the Irish government that they expect Donald Trump to visit. So we'll see what comes of that. Um, The Sunday Business Post Facebook braced for first fines from under-fire Irish data watchdog. Aaron Rogan reports that Facebook is expected to be hit with its first fines from the Irish Data Protection Commissioner when a tranche of investigations into the social media giant concludes in the summer. The Business Post understands this comes as international pressure on Ireland intensifies over its stance on data protection. Meanwhile, the contract of Helen Dixon, who heads up the Data Protection Commission, expires in a few months and the Business Post understands that tech firms have already offered views on the performance of the office to the government. Below the fold, by the way, in the Sunday Business Post. Uh, really intriguing story by Hugh O'Connell. Chinese cameras in Leinster House spark espionage concerns. People might be aware of the concerns around Huawei and whether there might be secret Chinese state surveillance in the new 5G uh, mobile phone technologies. Hugh O'Connell reports that the installation of surveillance cameras made by a Chinese state-backed company in Leinster House has prompted concerns about potential spying on TDs and senators. Fianna Fáil TD James Lawless has written to Leinster House's head of security seeking details on what security assessment was carried out prior to the installation of the cameras. The equipment is being provided by a company whose technology, the US government, recently banned its federal agencies from buying. So very interesting story. We'll see what comes out of that. Uh, Sunday Independent will go to next. Secret row over broadband costs. The Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure is not happy about the plans for the €3 billion national broadband plan. An astonishing row at the heart of government, says Philip Ryan, has seen Department of Public Expenditure and Reform Secretary-General Robert Watt explicitly tell Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donoghue, bear in mind that Pascal Donoghue is his minister in that department, that they should abandon plans to bring high-speed broadband to almost every home and business in the country. It's understood Mr Watt is vehemently opposed to the proposed broadband plan as he believes the €3 billion price tag cannot be justified and at several behind-closed-doors meetings in government buildings Mr Watt has directly told the Taoiseach and the Minister for Finance that spending billions of euro rolling out fibre-optic cables to almost every part of the country will not pay off in the long run. Um, Also on the front page of the Sunday Independent uh, there is nothing more uh, vicious than a row between party running mates in an election. Tensions are flaring in Fine Gael over constituency bound in a key European election battleground the Sunday Independent can reveal effectively as concerns the Midlands Northwest constituency which I think Owen will, will tell me has 13 counties I believe possibly in it um, yep. so it effectively has been split between uh, two candidates Maureen McGuinness on the eastern side Maria Walsh on the western side Walsh is accusing McGuinness of straying into her turf and canvassing for votes there uh, the quote by Philip Ryan is that the Defence Force Reserve member this is Maria, uh, Maria Walsh has added 
As a 31-year-old woman, I have a crown and sash from the Rose of Tralee in one hand, and in the other hand, my marksmanship is 37 out of 40 shots with a steer rifle. I am not here to be pushed over. Um, got me with the days of the Armalite in the ballot box, but now <laughs> it's the, uh, the Rose of Tralee sash <laughs> and a steer rifle on the other side. Um, the European Parliament also makes the front page of the Sunday Times because they have done an interview uh, with Peter Casey, the former presidential election candidate. He has called for freeloaders in Ireland's direct provision system to be put back on the plane and urge the government not to dilute Brand Ireland by, quote, inviting people who just want to take advantage of our generosity and our good nature, possibly misunderstanding the nature of direct provision that's being populated by people who are seeking asylum in this country, not just, you know, the luxurious life of living off 38 euro a week. I understand Mark Tighe is on holidays this week, so there is no new information about John Delaney himself on the front page of the Sunday Times, which I think is the first week in seven. Uh, but it does carry some news from Shane Ross, who has called for the board of the FAI to be stood down prior to the AGM in July rather than the meeting itself. Uh, the Sunday Times front page story itself, though, is the new IRA, an interview that John Mooney has done with some member of the self-styled new IRA. They say that the political fallout from Britain's decision to leave the European Union has presented it with an opportunity to recruit young supporters as Brexit has underlined the presence of the border and partition. In an interview with the Sunday Times which took place after the murder of Lear and McKee in Derry on April the 18th, representative from the group's Army Council acknowledged that there was no public support for their campaign of violence but said they would continue to mount attacks in Northern Ireland for propaganda reasons. Our armed actions serve one purpose. They are symbolic. They are propaganda. They let the world know there is an ongoing conflict in Northern Ireland said one of the dissident leaders condemning the IRA is nothing new we're not interested in being popular republicanism has always been a small core of people but the dissident added Brexit has forced the IRA to refocus and has underlined how Ireland remains partitioned it would be remiss of us not to capitalise on the opportunity well on the general topic of what's going on in Northern Ireland we do want to talk a little bit about the prospect of getting Stormont back up and running but before I invite contributions from my panel on that I want to talk about uh, a little bit about what Mary McAleese had to say she gave a very powerful interview yesterday morning to Susan Kyo on the Saturday edition of News Talk Breakfast. And one thing she spoke about is the contrast between the leaders of today and the leaders of the past. You know, Ian Paisley, Martin McGuinness, Peter Robinson, David Trimble, for example. These were all what I might call weathered politicians. Leaders should be able to push out into the deep, out into places where they know that their constituency is nervous about going, maybe even has been taught never to go to. But leaders are people who say, look, this is where we need to go to, and I'm going to go there, and I want you to follow me. Why? Because this is what's going to build our community. This is what's going to give us a decent future. This compromise is what we need to do. Now, we had that with those men. Unfortunately, when they left, when they left the political arena, the baton handed on it seems to me, to people who do not have that same level of experienced leadership, that same, if you like, confidence in pushing out into the deep. So I think we are looking at an issue to do with political inexperience, and we really don't have the time for them to grow to the same level of political experience, because as we can see, that the wheels are beginning to come off because of the lack of that. Mary McAleese speaking to Susan Kyo on yesterday's uh, News Talk Breakfast. Um, oh no, Manny, it's a very diplomatic tone that Mary McAleese presented there, but the substance of that is a pretty terrible excoriation of, of political leaders in the North in the modern day and age, isn't it? 
Yeah, so she's saying they're not old enough, not mature enough, uh, probably don't have enough behind them uh, in order to lead their, their people. And I mean, I think you can see that to some extent in that in the agreement in uh, 2017 between the DUP and Sinn Féin about getting the institutions back up and running. Uh, the DUP agreed it in, in, a, in meetings and then got second thoughts and turned around and at the last minute uh, pulled out of the deal. Again, they were just looking over their shoulders. And so that one of the problems is you have political leaders who are constantly looking over their shoulders. They're not confident enough. So, so they're not necessarily leaders then if they don't know they're representing No, I mean, when, a, when, a Paisley, when Ian Paisley said, I'm going that direction, you know, he knew that he could take uh, most of his people with him. And mm. equally, the same was true of uh, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness. Uh, whereas I suppose Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster just don't have that strength uh, within their parties that they could, and, and equally Mary Lou MacDonald uh, don't have that strength within their parties to to kind of take a jump and be confident that you won't lose some people on the way. Yeah, so that if you're to describe them as leaders, they don't necessarily have the political clout to bring people with them and to really lead in that technical sense. Not yet, no. Um, Ilona, uh, Sheena, there's an awful lot written in today's pages about uh, the prospect of reviving Stormont and about the aftermath of Lear McKee's death. Anything that jumps out at either of the two of you? Ilona? Well, I suppose for me, I think the big thing is that people have forgotten what it was like. Like I live on the border area and you have to remember that it's not that long ago that nobody went on holidays to the north. Nobody went shopping to the north apart from maybe alcohol and a few things that were cheaper. But life life in Northern Ireland has changed. And I suppose that's maybe why there isn't a push. The groundswell also isn't there to need to do something on this. And and really what we're having now is that people aren't thinking of the greater good. The politicians there aren't thinking of the greater good. They're thinking about self-protecting their own parties and their own roles. And it suits them maybe to remain apart. And so I think you think that they're they're serving their own interests and well, the interests of their of their political parties rather than the interests of Northern Ireland as a whole. Exactly, and I suppose something like what happened with Lyra last week is a reminder of the way things were. And you'd hope that they'll be put under pressure to make sure that no more of that can happen. Because when you see an article like that with the IRA kind of saying we're still there, we're going to remind people that, you know, that things will still happen until, as they see, as they call it, the crown forces are removed from Northern Ireland. Mm. They're going to continue with this. So we need leadership. And and I think it'll be outside pressure that'll push that. Yeah, it's a pretty stark uh, admission, isn't it, Sheena, the idea that the the new IRA or the self-styled new IRA, although I don't think they claim to inherit the same mandate as the previous IRAs did, but that they are openly admitting that they're not doing this because they reckon it's going to be popular or they're not going to do this because they reckon they have people on side, but that they almost have some sort of moral duty to cause this sort of havoc. To be honest, it's, it's hard to know what they actually care about. Um, I mean, in terms of the, the, the coverage in, in the paper today, uh, however, like there seems to be, uh, you know, variance of opinion from journalists as to, you know, the extent um, of change or interruption that Lyra's um, murder last week might actually have on uh, talks in relation to Stormont. Obviously, there's a lot of talk in relation to Simon Coveney's um, article yesterday uh, and how there's kind of a, a call to get everybody back to the table in May. But there, you know, there, nobody is really sure about, you know, we're, we're all sure that we're annoyed, we're upset, we're frustrated uh, at the tragedy and the murder but no one's entirely sure will that actually mean anything mm. will there be change uh, in May will people come uh, to the table obviously you've got Harris in the in the independent kind of uh, I suppose referring to Clapgate in the in, in the cathedral uh, Does it already uh, have a gate? Uh, well it, it, the, the, the issue being the that I mean, while 
while we we have a lot of fo- when we're talking about leadership, uh, we've a lot of photo opportunities between Arlene Foster and Mary Lou Macdonald looking solemn at the moment, but nothing really seems to be coming of it. And unless it, you know, if, if if Mary McAleese is right in terms of if if people aren't actually talking uh, and 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 looking at getting Stormont back up and running, then what's the point? Well, we'll talk about the prospects of how practical it might be in, in just a moment, and we'll talk about the intervention of uh, Father Martin McGill as well. Oh, is there anything that sticks out for you in the papers this morning about all the coverage of that? Yeah, so I mean, you have. Uh, Brenda, in the Sindo, Brendan O'Connor asked the question after Lyra's murder is it time's up for terrorism uh, and just beneath that Dan O'Brien more or less answers the question for him and says uh, no, no I'm afraid not mm. uh, and he goes through why it's unlikely that we will see an agreement and that we can see both sides have an incentive to not agree to anything uh, the DUP are more powerful outside uh, Stormont than they are because because of their position in Westminster. And he also points out that Brexit has created uh, deeper divisions within the, between the Protestant and Catholic communities in the north. Uh, and there's and he old and he says that there's new culture wars that didn't exist. That a couple of years ago Sinn Fein was a, essentially a conservative party. It was uh, anti-abortion party. It was kind of iffy on same-sex marriage. Uh, and so it was more or less sat on the same side as the mm. DUP. Uh, but which is partly the result, the fact that they've moved is partly the result, of course, of things that have happened south of the border because yes, they can't indeed. have two different policies for two different jurisdictions. Yes, yeah, indeed. And, pra- and perhaps because there was pressure from south of the border to, to kind of make mm. uh, Sinn Féin a more modern and more socially liberal party. But now they've Sinn Féin has moved, it expects everybody else to move with it. And so you've got kind of Christian evangelicals in the DUP who aren't obviously... Uh, too en- enthralled with with the idea mm. of uh, legalizing abortion, and so you're asking them to. This has now become a precondition, which is odd, given that like the Good Friday Agreement twenty one years ago, nobody was talking about uh, an Irish Language Act. In reality, nobody was talking about abortion or or same sex marriage, and now these have become issues that are actually dividing uh, those two communities. Mm. Which So it's, we can see, and one of the other things that uh, Dan O'Brien points out is that the Good Friday Agreement is flawed, but it's now, and it's just part of, part of the process, not the process itself. Uh, but a lot of people are treating it like it's some sort of sacred text and it can't be touched, mm. uh, which is, again, creating a roadblock to any likely agreement. One of the points that you touched on there is how some of the issues that Sinn Féin is, is raising and how they are they're sort of transcending what you would usually consider to be the nationalist issues and moving into social issues as well. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the next hour because we will be joined by Doug Beatty, one of the UUP MLAs, and see exactly how he sort of sees that characterisation going. But I do want to play one other piece of audio from Mary McAleese's interview yesterday. This is uh, another piece of, of what she told um, Susan Kyo, uh, just with reference to Clapgate there, Sheena, which I, I already like as a, a gate. Um, because amazingly, it has proven controversial in some circles. Not everyone is pleased with using a pulpit to make that sort of a gesture. But here is a little bit about what Mary McAleese had to say about the intervention of Martin McGill. Do I think Lyra's death will change anything? Um, probably not, unfortunately, I think. Um, will it change, for example, Father Martin McGill's church? Um, you know, her so desperately upset about her the future. She's not going to live the the breath that was taken from her body by those uh, young thugs with uh, with guns, will it change his church? Um, will they get into a conversation about what her life was like when she had breath in her body, thanks to the teaching 
um, that helped to conduce to the homophobia she encountered in Catholic schools and in the Catholic neighborhood. So I think there are profound questions there, too, to be asked. You know, when the question was put to Father McGill, you know, about his church and its teaching on gay marriage and what was his view on that, I mean, he came straight back with the red line that says that marriage is between a man and a woman. So I have to say that in recent days, from all sides, church and state, to be honest, I have heard people who want to hold to their red lines while asking others to give up theirs. And that's depressing because it's not going to be enough. But the point that she seems to be making there, Sheena, is that it's all well and good for Martin McGill to say you guys should be talking to each other, but that a certain amount of community leadership has to mean leading by example as well, and that looking for the sort of, you know, uh, reconciliation or settlement that that some of the nationalists are looking for is not the sort of uh, settlement that Martin McGill himself would sign up to. Sure, and Mary McAleese kind of, you know, kind of taking getting us through all the, the you know, the images of, um, you know, that, that sustained applause um, during the funeral and actually kind of really asking the question of is is there anything anything good going to come of it I mean you can you can you can get that sustained applause but if you continue in your own church um, you know to prevent kind of uh, same sex marriage as Lyra would have always wanted um, you know it's hard to it's hard to understand how anyone can expect change I mean um, in in terms of Lyra herself and I I suppose one reflection I've had over the last week I'm 26 um, and we opened a a book of condolences for the student movement in Ireland. Several hundred responses in 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 a day or two, and um, we there was a lot of us um would have worked either with directly with Lyra as a journalist, or uh, and her next piece, for instance, was going to be on the student movement North and South. Mm. Uh, the USI uh, represents um, students both north and south of the border, and um, a trilateral agreement with uh, the UK student movement um, actually happened, you know, over twenty years before the Good Friday Agreement at the time. Oh, really? it's and that that long-standing the kind yeah. of dual arrangement between the NUA and USI yeah. in the north okay. um, and, and we set up the NUS USI at the time and I suppose for in, in my reflection in the last week is that um, you know Brendan O'Connor's article uh, rightly talks about the kind of the social justice issues that now seem to be kind of pervading the conversation and, and also the Irish Language Act uh, in Northern Ireland whereas that wouldn't have been and, and, and Owen's right earlier that wouldn't have been the case um, during the conversations around the Good Friday Agreement um, but the reality is is that um, the ripple effects of Lyra's murder um, have, have impacted a generation um, that really ne- never understood, um, certainly south of the border, uh, what um, terrorism and, and what this kind of disruption looks like in people's everyday lives. Um, I've certainly never experienced it in my life. And uh, the fact that this happened last week uh, has really shook a generation of young people mm. who, you know, on one hand, we're, we're seeing articles this week that Sarah were kind of putting up posters and aggressively recruiting in UCC and elsewhere. But... I think, you know, ultimately the, 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 the pushback on that is actually much more visible uh, than the acceptance of it. Um, Alona Duffy, we've talked an awful lot in the course of the last 10 days about how the vacuum in Stormont has perhaps allowed the likes of Sarah or indeed the, the new IRA to recruit, largely because the younger generations in Northern Ireland have the luxury of not remembering or not having lived through the troubles. Do you think the same vulnerability might exist on our side of the border in like counties like Monaghan that you're from or from Cavan, where again there are younger people who like the notion of a united Ireland but don't see anyone actually going about achieving it and then therefore might be attracted to the likes of extreme groups like Sarah or the new IRA because they see it as the only vehicle to achieve it? 
I actually think things have changed dramatically on our side of the border and I don't see that and you don't get that sense talking to young people anymore at all. I think in the north it's still there and I suppose the hope was that 21 years on that we would have seen another generation and another generation where all of these kind of deep rooted beliefs and differences would have kind of slowly kind of been diluted out Mm. and here we are seeing you know a deliberate attempt and the IRA in that article they mentioned the the radicalisation of young people so there is a big push they want to see people still have that hatred, still be involved in the fight as they see it. So Mm. I think there's a deliberate attempt there to keep it going. That's not, I don't see that in the South and I definitely don't get a feeling of that in Monaghan on the border. I think it's actually fascinating in its own way that the the post-conflict era, as we like to think of it, that it means that you have, you know, a young generation of nationalists on the Republic side of the border and a young generation of nationalists on the Northern side and perhaps even in the post-violent days they still have completely different outlooks or understandings of of what the Troubles was all about and how society has moved on since. Um, Owen O'Malley, it's going to be a little while before these talks get going because the uh, British and Irish governments have agreed not to convene them until after the local elections which I think are this coming Thursday or possibly the week after um, what do you see as the prognosis for a happy outcome of those talks or do you see us really getting anywhere at all I mean obviously the two parties the two main parties the DUP and Sinn Féin will be under seri- severe pressure to agree something but it's difficult to see when you you have red lines that have been set out. So it is clear that uh, Sinn Féin is saying that the DUP has agreed to an Irish language act. The DUP saying, no, we never agreed to this. We agreed, the British government agreed to this. That's not going to miraculously go away in the next two or three weeks. Sinn Féin is clearly setting out a, a, a strategy whereby what it's it's positioning itself as a party of equality and mm. equal rights. And is, is it set up to fail a little bit in that they're decided not only to have these talks after the local elections, which means that those two parties, at least if not the others as well, will come back feeling extra emboldened about their own manifestos and they'll feel even less inclined to compromise. Well, so and well, there's always another election coming up in in Northern Ireland. It's never too but, far. But to away. call one in the three weeks between two different sets of elections seems yeah, particularly. I, I, yeah, so they they might yeah they might feel well we can't if if they've done well in those two elections they'll see no reason to compromise if they've done badly they might also feel no reason to compromise so it's not likely to to uh, to imbue a, a sort of sentiment of. Uh, of compromise and then you have another the European elections are coming along around the corner as well so. Again, you don't want to do that. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. We will be talking to Doug Beatty from the UUP in the next hour about exactly how he sees it all going and whether there is uh, scope for compromise. Uh, one of the major talking points this week was conditions at the mortuary in University Hospital Waterford and specifically the idea that there are so little uh, storage units or storage capacity down there uh, that you now have the really abhorrent idea of um, dead bodies being allowed to remain on hospital corridors uh, in states of decomposition, leaking fluids, making... Uh, open casket funerals, uh, a complete non-runner in some of those cases. Um, there are two major pieces on that topic in today's papers. There's a piece by Ethna Tynan in the Mail on Sunday and also a piece in the Sunday Independent by Kira Kelly of this uh, parish. Um, Sheen, I'm going to come to you. For people who haven't had a chance to read the Mail on Sunday piece by Ethna Tynan, can you generally summarise the points that she's making about it? Sure. Um, Ethna kind of obviously kind of talks to the outrage, um, of course, across the country that came with the, the story uh, in relation to the kind of dead bodies um, in, in Waterford University hospital during the week and basically what what she kind of looks at is the fact that you know she she looks at how how the story came out and then how it was treated um when it did come out and the fact that you know four epithologists actually wrote 
you know, a letter last October uh, and then it effectively got buried in the HSE's kind of internal processes. Nothing really happened. And mm. effectively what she points to is that this had to be leaked um, for, for any, the, the letter had to be leaked. The fact that this was happening had to be leaked for anything to be done about it. That, that you know, that she points to the fact as well that, you know, when you look at big projects and the amount of money that's going into uh, the debacle of the children's hospital, she, 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 she argues, money is clearly not the issue here in, in, in Waterford because money could be thrown at it. And actually, since the, the letter has been leaked, a number of things have, have come into play where, uh, you know, short term, medium and long term plans effectively overnight were, yeah. were released. Um, and, and she's so arguing not a shortage of money's resources not the then. problem. OK, and then we have uh, Kira Kelly in the Sunday Independent making the converse argument that part of the reason why we have so many mm-hmm. hospitals, all of which are providing a substandard service is because we never really completed the process that was introduced in the, the last decade of this kind of rationalisation of having centres of excellence and that ultimately people still expect there to be too good a service on their doorsteps. Now, I don't know whether that can necessarily translate um, Ilona in the case of Waterford, which is still, you know, after all, a city. So it probably does make a justifiable case. Mm. Um, but what strikes you then as, as being the the indications of, of how the system is set up when we look at all of this, that you clearly it is abhorrent to have the remains of dead people treated with such ignominy that they're decomposing on a hospital corridor. But you can argue simultaneously in these pieces today that it's because there isn't enough money in the system or because there is too much money in the system. And I wonder which side you fall down on. Well, I'm going to say, I think, number one, the whole issue of Waterford Hospital and and, and people dying and being left to lie in, in a corridor is appalling. And why does it happen? We're, you know, it's about accountability and responsibility, really. And here we are, and we know that the four pathologists informed management in the hospital last October and nothing has happened. And this isn't the first time. We've got to realise that repeatedly we become aware much later after the, uh, f- the the fact that letters would have been sent by consultants or other staff in the hospital to mm. management complaining about different crises and nothing happens until the letters leaked and that's, that's the big problem. And I suppose one of the things that people may not be aware is that in the consultant contract and it was something they tried to put into the new GP contract was this kind of clause where you could not pu- go out publicly and talk about a problem in the system or something that had gone wrong. You had to go through a process. That's still in the consultant contract. They are not allowed to go out. So, that's so, why so GPs like leaked. yourself could hypothetically have been told that you couldn't come on a forum like this and complain about the structure of the health service. Absolutely. And moreover, consultants are strictly speaking forbidden from doing that. that. They still have that clause in their contract. So that's why, you know, they're never able to come on a radio show and talk about these kind of things whereas I am because Mm. we made sure that it was taken out of the contract and John Crown was a very strong voice at that time with the under sixes contract when it came in to ensure that that Mm. could never be put into it. And I suppose, you know, you see this happening. So why are questions not being asked of, well, why was nothing done about this last October? Why was this not highlighted? So it's back to the whole thing. Where is our money going? How is our money being managed? we don't know because we still don't understand the management systems in our hospital and in our healthcare service. So I'm, I'm a GP 20 years and when I started out in Monaghan, we had a fully functional hospital in Monaghan mm. town and the services were removed from that. And at the time it was said that, you know, some of it was safety, some of it was money. Really, the reality of it was, it was all about money and it was about, all about pooling resources mm. into the other hospitals, as we thought. But the reality is they closed the acute services in the hospital and did not add to the services in either Drogheda or, or in Cavan. We were promised there would be enhanced ambulance service and there was for a short time. But now we're back at the stage where if I have somebody who comes in and they have a heart attack or as has happened to us, somebody who's having a seizure in the surgery, we can wait over an hour on an ambulance to arrive for an emergency ambulance to arrive. Now, for an area that used to have an acute hospital a, on That used doorstep. to have an acute hospital. And I know Kira Kelly in her article is talking about the fact that we can't have everything everywhere. And I mean, that's an old 
kind of that's an old line that was used you can't have an all singing all dancing hospital in every county in, in the country and you can't absolutely but you can have models that work and I suppose the way it was meant to work was that there was primary, secondary and tertiary healthcare primary mm. care we are seeing a push towards resourcing it more and we have to give that to Simon Harris that he has agreed on on a kind of a package of reversal of the cuts that came to general practice and also enhancing uh, practices t- to support them to manage more chronic care so the diabetics the people with chronic bronchitis okay. that they manage in the community the secondary care should be then the local hospitals and finally the tertiary care where you go with the really unusual stuff with your cancer care like our breast care but mm. the problem is that um, it's very easy I suppose anyone who talks about saying cut down in hospitals always tends to live near a hospital so Kira's in Dublin near a hospital she, so, you know it's so very different if you're down country with six acute hospitals so, but if you're in Monaghan with yeah. none Well you can reduce services as long as you enhance the services in the other hospitals and as long as you've backup services in the areas from which you've removed the acute services uh, Whatever about the, the question of the uh, structure of the health service zone, the one thing that strikes me about the way in which uh, Sheena outlined the handling of the, the Waterford letter there where an FOI request was put in, it was declined on the somehow on the grounds that it wouldn't be in the public interest, which I presume means that it would have been embarrassing, embarrassing. to the HSE, uh, and then ultimately gets leaked out, which I think we all have to welcome because lights need to be shun on this sort of thing. But if the HSE was taking the position that they did not want this out there, Presumably the HSE does not take the position that if only we had more money, we could do something better about this. That the HSE, you would think, would want there to be, you know, public outcry at the shortage of situations that they could go to the minister and say, well, sorry, this is what you get when you don't give us all the money that we want. Presumably, the only uh, conclusion we can infer is that because the HSE said we would rather this not be out there, the HSE knows it has the means to address this. Yeah, so it's poor management probably. Well, I mean, if we look at any any sort of metric, we spend a lot, quite a lot of money on healthcare in Ireland. It's not a shortage of money. Mm. Uh, I'd be sympathetic, but maybe I'm... I live in Dublin as well, so I'd be sympathetic to, six the, acute hospitals. <laughs> yeah. to the idea that we can't. I mean, we the reason we have all these hospitals is because of the hospital sweepstakes in the 20s and 30s threw money at building hospitals. Mm. And so we got great hospital buildings and then didn't have the resources to we no longer have the resources to to man them. Uh, the other thing that a couple of other things that uh, that Kira Kelly mentions, though, are the the idea of drug inflation. So we're, healthcare is a lot more expensive than it used to be. And so to look after anybody, you know, you'll you'll go in, you'll get, you could spend 10 grand very, very quickly. I remember mm. when my mother died, the bill came, which uh, happily health insurance was was paying. But in her last two or three weeks of her life, I'd say she cost uh, that health insurer about 100,000 euros, which just seems ridiculous. Is that a culture that, that kind of emerges or mushrooms by itself? Because if people, if hospitals know that ultimately it's never going to have to come out of your pocket because your insurer is going to pay it that it's just a, a, an easy way of hospitals to inflate their own incoming. Yeah, so this is this is a, a problem in that, you know, the, the, per, the customer as such is the person who makes decisions mm. uh, is not going to actually be paying it. And so the health insurer then has doesn't have any control over what has been spent. And Although the health insurer, they are now, they have set criteria for certain tests and, you know, things like a PET scan is now the best scan if you have cancer to show if there's spread everywhere. But you, they will only cover that if you meet certain criteria. So they are trying to claw back mm-hmm. on that and ensure that it isn't that you go in as a private patient into a hospital and you meet every consultant for every speciality and have every test under their book. Would you agree, Ilona, with the point that Kira Kelly makes in her piece, which is that ultimately a lot of the reason why these things cost 
more is because healthcare is much more sophisticated these days and where 30 years ago you may have gone to an acute hospital in Monaghan Town but that often the scope of treatment that you could get there albeit an acute hospital on your doorstep was pretty limited and that they would effectively observe you to see whether you got better or whether you died. Well and Kira that- makes a really good point on that and she talks about the change and management of something like a heart attack in the old days you went in you might have been given a bit of aspirin and then it was bed rest and they kind of monitor you did bloods and all of the rest. Now you are you know if you're in Monaghan and, and you may be lucky enough actually to have the right heart attack they may call the air ambulance to bring you to the matter for you to have that stent put in and then you'll be transferred back to Cavan for your recuperation there but you'll be home much quicker you'll be home within days not in hospital for weeks so you look at cancer care you look at all the chronic conditions we can do so much more we can investigate so much more diagnose so much more and treat so much more but it all comes with a cost At the risk of of going into too much uh, medical detail at 37 minutes past 11 on a Sunday morning when you said they're lucky enough to have the right sort of heart attack which is a sentence (laughs) that would take an awful lot to unpack but like is are there different grades where like if a heart attack is is acute that you'll be seen in a certain way and if it's milder that you'll just be kind of put in the bed and be told to take it easy? Well you come to me in the surgery with your chest pain and we do an ECG which is a tracing of your heart rhythm and it may show a specific change and Mm. that will confirm it's a specific type of heart attack and you can be shipped immediately to have the clot busting kind of stent put in but sometimes you won't have that change in the ECG or your heart attack may have happened outside the time period yeah. so it may not be diagnosed until you get to the hospital have bloods and then you've missed the boat on it um, This leaves us with very little time to talk about some of the other issues around uh, the public purse and all of this uh, Owen I want to come to you about the, the National Broadband Plan um, it is very striking the story in the front page of the Sunday Independent that clearly somebody in the civil service we don't know who and I don't want to speculate but somebody has thought it important to let the world know that the Secretary General at the Department responsible for Public Spending is not happy with the Minister's own proposal to spend €3 billion Euro on the broadband plan, which yeah, would, be, uh, like, is, would be massive dysfunction in any other state, wouldn't it? Uh, it's not great when presumably it's senior civil servants leaking against uh, their own government, mm. and I'm sure the senior civil servants say it wasn't them, and um, perhaps it, indeed it wasn't. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it's a huge amount of money, and so €3 billion, Euros, uh, we're talking about... I mean, again, it gets it gets to this idea of do we support rural Ireland enough? But we're talking about about five and a half grand subsidy to each house, uh, and it'll in fact be a lot more because it'll be those houses who which are halfway up a mountain, which will be getting huge subsidies mm-hmm. in order to to link them. Uh, Robert Walsh is probably I think is probably right. It's it's not worth the the money, and uh, maybe that's why the department or somebody in the department has decided they have to leak. Uh, Leak it. Mm. Uh, there are other there are other articles about in the pay, in the Sunday Independent about this issue and about the issue of public sector pay as well, uh, and whether the government is sort of taking its eye off the ball or maybe deliberately taking its eye off the ball with a view to the election, and that it's becoming a little bit more fluhulak uh, with yeah. the with the purse. Well, well, again, much like there are two of us sitting around the table who have access to six acute hospitals within a bus network, is also there's two of us who are sitting uh, who are living in Dublin and therefore have access to all this sort of stuff whereas we have um, the two people on the other side of the table are from uh, Monaghan and Longford I think Sheena uh, places which are not, not necessarily for blessed for its connectivity <laughs> yeah. um, Sheena what do you reckon that the people of Longford would think of picking up their paper and seeing well it's all well and good that we don't want to spend 3 billion euro but we'd quite like to have our broadband please yeah, like, we, it can't, this constantly make, is made into a debate about the urban rural divide and whether or not we, we care about um, rural Ireland but you know it is the argument is made or the discussion by Wayne O'Connor on, on page 4 of the Sunday Independent about people 
the people in Kerry as well, mm. right? Who, who, yes, the, the the subsidy that the government would have to allocate to those houses to get them across mountains uh, would be would be of large cost. But they didn't get a phone line until 2017. Like it's it's just like it's it's mad that you, you we're sitting here mm. obviously with access to effectively full broadband services, but for people in 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 areas of rural Ireland who are doing their best um, to set up the businesses and, 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 and provide, uh, you know, tourism uh, for people coming over. Um, you know, it's, it's all very well for us to say, uh, you know, uh, it's not worth the investment. But the reality is that they are very much it's it's, it's the, the title of O'Connor's article is Forgotten People of the Black Valley Left in the Dark Ages. And I mean, for some people, it is very much that without even mobile phone coverage. Uh, Alona, we're, we're tight on time, but I suppose one of the concerns that you must have as a, a GP and someone who kind of works in the community in, in the likes of Monaghan is that so many social services are now being pushed into, you know, online only access, where if you're told to apply for a medical card, often the first place you'll be told is to go to the Citizens Information website. And if people don't have access to that sort of stuff, that they're going to become more squeezed out from actually just participating in public life at all. Well, absolutely. And uh, there's that. And also, I suppose, from the medical side of things, there's so much that we can do perhaps into the future with telemedicine and video consultations, all of that, so mm. that GPs be able to contact consultants, show a rash or whatever. And without the broadband, we're not going to be able to do that. But even worse, we still don't. We still have patchy mobile phone coverage in Monaghan, probably in Longford yeah. too. Mm. And I'm yeah. probably, I came back from Mayo at the weekend. And, and again, areas with no coverage at all on your phone. So, you know, there's a lot of work still to be done in giving us that connection activity out in rural Ireland. Um, Alona Duffy, there are some uh, speaking in today's papers and it's something that Simon Harris spoke about during the week, this question of mandatory vaccinations and this idea that you should have to be uh, vaccinated if you're going to send your child to a creche or any kind of a preschool or indeed to primary school itself. Uh, we'll talk about the whether that's a, a legal runner in a moment, but from a medical perspective, how do you feel about that idea of making it mandatory? I suppose nobody likes to be dictatorial in in telling people how they're going to manage their own health. But I think this isn't just about, you know, parents making the decision for their children. It's parents making the decision that could impact in other children and especially those who are vulnerable, those who are sick, immunocompromised. So I'd be totally in agreement with it. We we in our general practice have seen a rise in the number of parents who are deciding not to vaccinate their children. And when you try to talk to them and say, well, why? What, what's the evidence behind this? It's mm. all scaremongering on, on, on kind of on social media in the main and people still talking about the MMO more and autism when we absolutely know that that has been disproven that there is no link but still people are talking about it because it's still you know on blogs on websites that they, they they read and the big thing I suppose is that when you ask parents to make a decision on this and to sign a form in our practice if they don't want to vaccinate their kid we make them sign forms saying that they accept responsibility for the potential harm to their child and to others and they don't want to sign it. It's amazing how many they refuse w- they to sign, sign it. They won't sign some sort of conscientious objection thing when it's put in writing in front of them. Exactly. They're happy to say, no, 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 it's not safe for my kid. And the reality is we are seeing, uh, you know, an explosion of these cases. And the numbers may sound small at the moment, but the reality is they're going to keep going up and up. So you look at the likes of measles, which is a highly contagious disease. And there are a number of things. Number one, it's highly contagious. Number two, many GPs have never seen it before. So sometimes we can be a bit slower in actually diagnosing it. It's actually genuinely the case that measles is now so uncommon that not every well, GP would recognise it. all of these things been gone. I know in our practice, you know, at the beginning, a couple of years ago, when we started to see a few cases coming. It was my dad who's in his 80s and still working that we'd be calling in and say, do you think that's measles or what do you think that is? And he'd be saying, absolutely, and telling us what to look for. So again, in my role as medical director, we've been kind of trying to educate GPs on all of these kind of illnesses that are back months 
we're seeing an explosion in mumps as well, German measles. And the reality is these diseases kill and maim. You know, when I was young, I actually got measles. The vaccination wasn't in. But the reality is I was lucky, but there are others who weren't lucky and who ended up with brain damage, who ended up deaf, who ended up blind and boys who could end up with infertility as a result of getting mumps at the wrong time in their life. So we can prevent all these illnesses. We know they work and we know they're safe. Like millions of vaccination doses have been given and we know that all of that data is there and has been reviewed and reviewed and they are safe. They save lives and people need to be forced to make it not make a decision that have the decision made for them. I'm fascinated by that idea that people won't sign a conscientious objection form if it's put in writing in front of them but we might tease that out again at some other point. Um, Owen as the academic in the room um, what is the legal uh, dilemma about all of this because I understand that Simon Harris has asked and I see you're already furrowing your brow which means you don't necessarily know the answer either but I'm going to hang you out to try and ask you the question anyway um, that Simon Harris has asked the Attorney General for some guidance as to whether this is a runner or not but there seems so to be So it's to do with the education of the children so in the constitution it says that the the state will yeah. kind of treat all children essentially equally yeah. and so that it cannot exclude it, those who haven't been yeah okay. and so well then there are questions about whether it can then can exclude people on the basis of their health or whether they've they've taken these okay. things so it it's like most things in the constitution it's unclear uh, i mean what I would do if I were Simon Harris is just go ahead with it and let let a case go to court. Isn't there also the uh, the whole question about bodily autonomy and whether you can actually force a parent or a child to undergo that sort of thing when they're not necessarily on board with the procedure? Yeah, so I mean that's one of the things that came out of the fluoridation of water, which happened in the seventies, mm. and and so they were forced they're forcing fluoride yeah. into into our bodies, which again some crazies are obje- object to, uh, and. So yes, there is probably there is this right to bodily autonomy, and so the state probably doesn't have the right to just to to force us to take medical care that we don't want to receive. Sheena, where do you reckon the balance should lie on that? Because if on one side there is obviously the public health and the the scientific basis for which vaccines are a good idea, but then on the other side the idea that society is moving continuously towards a the general premise of live and let live and people should be uh, to make their own decisions about what happens to their own bodies. Where do you think the balance lies on this? Um, well, the Union of Students in Ireland have uh, actually support the HPV Vaccination Alliance and uh, very much are in favour of um, people accessing uh, vaccinations. And m- me personally, you know, I, I think that if if not having a vac- uh, vaccination means that you're putting other people at risk, then uh, at, at even school age children uh, should even should be informed absolutely uh, about it. And certainly their parents should, should be aware of the risks. But I do think people should be making sure that they get vaccinated. Uh, I have apologised in this chair to you sitting in that chair before about the idea of casting you as the token spokesperson for young people and the general Happy font of, all, <laughs> yeah. of all youth. You are the, the, the Tiernan Ogue delegate here in the rest of the room. Yeah. Um, I turned 27 on, on last Tuesday, so I'm going to hold on to the youth right. for as I'll, long I'll as possible. I uh, hope you're already checking, checking out your pension plans with your, your, your USI stipend or whatever it is. Um, the reason I, I ask you with your, your kind of young person's hat on is because we seem to be having the debate which breaks out hysterically for about a fortnight every two or three yeah. years or so about election posters oh, and right, surely yeah. you know surely in this day and age with election posters that surely we can find a more mm. elegant way of telling people what candidates are running um, and yet then there are others who say well actually unless you're the incumbent yeah. election poster is pretty much the only way that you can put yourself front and centre and actually let people know that there are 
other options available. Sure, unless you're, I suppose, Billy Kelleher down in Cork, um, w- w- because, for instance, I think it's in within a 200 yard radius. See, it's something like 40 posters up on, uh, <laughs> you know, on one on one road right outside UCC to the point that UCC Students Union have put together a petition, uh, you know, <laughs> saying, can, yeah. can we please end down this? With Billy. Um, and it's not even, do you know what? It's not, this isn't an attack on Billy or anyone specifically. And I think it, it's similar you know, things have been said about uh, Barry Andrews in, in Dublin and around some parts where it's effectively taking over every poll mm. and, 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 and that. But one of the things I would say is uh, certainly I've seen, I know a lot of candidates running. I also know uh, a lot of people who've been giving out about all the posters that have gone up in the flurry of activity um, around that. Uh, not only about the content and the, the, the dodgy photographs on some of the posters, which brings us some joy for exactly two days and then we're annoyed at them. Um, mm. But also the, the problem of actually the environmental question that very legitimately is being put forward at, the, at, at this time, which is the amount of plastic and cardboard that gets yeah. used. Um, and, and you can somehow recycle them and, again but, afterwards. And, and, and it's the balance of that versus um, we don't like the idea of um, Facebook uh, algorithms um, showing us some content uh, due to paid advertising versus others. Yeah. Um, and, and at least, you know, polls it seemed to be fair game for everybody, at least. Um, though some people were definitely putting up posters well before the, the, the midnight, uh, the stroke of midnight yes, uh, during yeah. the week. And, and that was causing consternation. Then you've, of course, got the hot fuzz of uh, tidy towns committees <laughs> in uproar right around rural, rural Ireland um, who are giving out. And then you've got, you know, candidates uh, and others trying to clarify, I think, as you did, uh, Gavin, during the week that, you know, they don't actually get to decide, you yeah. know, whether They're not posters go up or not. Yeah. And then you have the graffiti artists who are making, um, you know, uh, not lots of uh, light work of, of some of the, the candidates posters. Um, I, I've seen a few of them, particularly around the Stony Batter area um, where we have, uh, you know, various different uh, t- types of signage. Um, uh, uh, McMurrow throwing out the Fianna Fáil uh, template in favour of her own type of poster. Ah. Uh, Christy Burke going with the one of our own. And I also found uh, as, as a tagline, but I think it was on the back of the, the Times actually, which is fantastic. Anyone wants to check it out, a very small section called Election Hopefuls Make a Name for Themselves. But basically uh, oh, it, the, 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 the Mother Trump. Folklore Twitter account has actually yeah. pulled together some of the more interesting nicknames, nicknames of local election candidates there's a John Texas Byrne uh, and my favourite one would be uh, uh, I have to say something like Peter Chap Clear in Kilkenny um, and John Porridge O'Connor uh, <laughs> down I, I think in in I, Kerry Sometimes I can understand to some degree I mean I'm sure there's a, a merit to all of those individual instances but somehow I wonder how are there multiple John O'Connors in which the only way that you could discern one from the other was by referring to him by Barbage. <laughs> that's how most people in rural Ireland manage to distinguish between each other is with with nicknames. There, and so there's probably a John Avocado Toast O'Connor. The, 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 could be. Uh, I mean, the, the, it had always started as a way of getting yourself further up on the ballot paper. Mm. So a lot of people adopted nicknames or or used yeah. their nicknames. So the cope was. The Cope Gallagher yeah. got him to see, uh, and then there was Dublin Bay Loftus, which brought him up, uh, brought him up the paper. So a lot, some then of them are rock some of them are that, but then again. other and maybe boxer. Uh, so maybe some of them is is about that, but it's probably to distinguish you from from all the other Noel O'Connors. Is it actually the case that being higher up the ballot paper does actually win you more votes? I always thought that was a bit of an old wives' tale. Maybe you can sort of shed some academic light on there that. There is evidence yeah. that it does help, yeah. I mean, it's not going, you're not going to become, uh, go from being a nobody to uh, elected, but mm. there is, is evidence that it'll give you a, a little boost. The, the, uh, the, they're more likely to give you a stroke, as they say. <laughs> yeah. uh, is that how uh, Cahill ended up getting, getting top of the USI ballot paper? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> the, yeah. your, your 
right That's hand how I brought to where I am today. Yeah. Yeah. But it's as long as they recognise him. Do you remember Enda Kenny and he had the makeover in his last election and there were the Fine Gael posters up and it was just, I was thinking who is this? Who is this person? It was Enda oh, Kenny. So you do you remember he did the new hair, hair do yeah. and, and nobody knew who it, who it was. Yeah. Uh, definitely say there should actually as much as there should be a, a definitely a, a, a banning or at least a reduction of the number of uh, posters that people should be able to um, be able to put up in an mm. area because mm. I think there are genuine uh, and, and we've made light of it but there, there's some genuine concerns about the amount of single use plastics that's being used um, in this in the, in election cycles uh, and, a, and a flurry of activity around that but also I think there should be something around that when you took your photograph um, I've seen, <laughs> <laughs> I've, seen a pho- I've seen some photographs of county councillors in particular that absolutely got taken 20 years ago and it's I'm because like they're that using looks their nothing posters. like that now <laughs> you should and, be thankful <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think that's that's probably it's one of those very is concerning because people are getting away with it uh, Ona Mali very briefly uh, on the topic of election posters it seems that Maria Walsh isn't at all happy with seeing uh, some of Ray McGuinness's posters in certain counties that were agreed to be no man's land uh, isn't it always the case that uh, rows between party running rivals are always They're more vicious the than most any bitter other? Than, than anything else uh, I mean I think it's a turf war that you know got both of them on the front page of the paper and I'd say Maria Walsh is, is reasonably happy with having brought up the, this turf war uh, getting on the front page of the biggest selling paper in the country won't do, won't do her any mm. harm. Uh, what do you make of the idea that she's reminding us that she's also a dab hand with certain rifles? Yeah, that's good. The, I mean, she's the the new way of looking at the armalite in one hand and the malapox in the other. She's the the sash in one hand and the steer ri- rifle in the other. And uh, so it it does also kind of put her out as. Uh, a more active and uh, sort of candidate mm. maybe than, than the others in the field. Is there enough of a vote? Uh, this might be getting a bit inside baseball now. Is there enough of a vote in that constituency for there to be two Fine Gael MEPs? Because, I mean, Maureen McGuinness makes the point that Fianna Fáil ran two candidates last time and neither of them ended up getting in because they split the vote too well. Yeah, so it's it's a, it's difficult, but it's a big constituency, and Maureen McGuinness is very much on the east of the constituency, so it makes sense to have somebody in the in the west of that constituency. So it does make sense to have two constituencies. Now, Maria Walsh doesn't regard herself as a sweeper, uh, mm. whereas Maureen McGuinness maybe does Kim think does, that she's yeah. a sweeper. It's uh, not a bit worrying though that it's the real dumbing down of the whole thing. We are talking about an election to yeah. the European Parliament, and here we have a candidate who's talking about holding a sash and a rifle, and you know it. it a bit worrying because as as you said she's on the front page of the paper and a large photo inside the paper as well and, I and think for me much yeah. more worrying than, than that is actually you know Casey's comments uh, which is uh, which are tracked actually on the front page Don't give him attention the then um, <laughs> Yeah and, and no, I know I, I get you but I think still it needs to be called out I mean you know he, he, on one on one minute he's saying oh I'm not going to give out about travellers anymore but instead I'm going to switch now. tactic and give out about people in direct provision uh, referring to them as freeloaders um, I, I don't like giving uh, you know that kind of content much of a platform either but I think it's that is you know I think O'Brien Stephen O'Brien kind of says it well Casey thinks in tweets and talks in sound bites and I think you know that's the kind of stuff that's, that, that is getting coverage on the front page uh, One thing I didn't ask you about uh, Owen the question of uh, election posters democratic importance or eyesore or where do they stand? Oh I think they're a great thing uh, I think they are one of the few ways that most average people know about elections otherwise yeah. I mean if you go to the We couldn't come up with a better way of doing that? Literum Taucon or Circular Booklet or something They've like that? They've got them. I think, I, I think when you walk around town, you know there's an election on. You know where the polling station is going to be. You know 
what when it is. And I, I, th- I think that's because of po- one of the things it's because of is posters. Uh, fair enough. Uh, on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you to all of you for coming in. Really enjoyed the chat. Uh, Ona Mali is a social scientist at the School of Government and Law in DCU. Sheena Cal is the president of Union of Students in Ireland. And Dr. Alona Duffy is a GP in Monaghan and the medical director of the North East Doctor and Call Service. Thank you all for coming in this morning. Really appreciate your time.